Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. And this is Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and, in fact, what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, it's an interviews episode. And it's not just an interviews episode. It's a great one because you have brought us a wonderful guest. Tell us a little about our guest. We are so happy to have with us this week, New York Magazine. Are you writer? What is your title there, Sean McCreish? Yeah, features writer is my title. We are so happy to have with us features writer at New York Magazine, Sean McCreish, who, and we are going to get into this, just disclosed to me that he's also, like our previous guest, Alex Thompson, a former Maureen Dowd research assistant. So we have a pattern here of guests who I like bringing on the show. But Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Chris and I are both longtime fans of your wonderful profiles. Thank you so much for having me. Sean, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from and how did you come into the journalism world? Sure. I grew up in a town right outside Philly called Hatboro, a lower middle class kind of working class town, actually right near where Jill Biden grew up. And always wanted to live in New York. Basically, everybody in my family works with their hands, and I am not a blue-collar person. I can't even screw in a light bulb. So I kind of knew that I had to go to college. It was like the only way I was going to get out of there. So I ended up at St. John's in Queens, got some generous, you know, some generous student aid to go there. And I went undecided. And eventually, I, I, I met somebody. I was working in a restaurant in Queens, and I met this chick who was a little older and she was in the journalism program and I kind of was like, how did you know that's what you wanted to do? And she was just like, you know, well, I'm a really nosy person and I'm really gossipy and I ask too many questions and I get really obsessed with things in the news out of nowhere. And, and I was kind of like, well, that sounds like me. So I just declared and, and I ended up really liking it. And that led to an internship at this free newspaper. I don't even know if it's around anymore. It's called AM New York, but this was in like 2012 or 2013 back when the cell phone service didn't really extend into subway stations yet. So people would read this free newspaper that there was like, a, you know, there was a little vestibule for it in each subway station. And I was going to ask if this is what they would hand out when you walk down into the yes. subway. Yeah, I remember this. It was. And the poor bedraggled staff reporters there used to darkly joke that we were the number one leading cause of train track fires because people would just <laughs> throw it on the ground. Hey, I work and for the Washington Examiner. I, 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 too, was part of the last gasp of free print media. I dig it. I feel you. Yeah. And, you know, it was for me, it was so cool seeing my name in the paper. But I look back uh, on, on those assignments and they were like the lowest of the low. I mean, I remember one time when CVS announced that it was no longer selling cigarettes. I, I had to stand outside of CVS all day and interview people who I thought were going in for cigarettes and ask them how I felt when they couldn't get them. Or, you know, one time a school How bus... did you decide if someone was going in for cigarettes or not? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm a, I, I'm a smoker, too. So I just felt like I could recognize my own. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and you know, one time, like, a school bus full of children hit and killed somebody on the Upper East Side. And I had to run and get quotes. And the kids were still on the bus while the body was under the tire. And, you know, like, 
you're, I was like 19 asking people like, so how do you feel like watching that person get killed? You know, it was just like these horrible assignments, but it was a, it was a start. And then that led to an internship at Rolling Stone magazine. And my first job after that was at another magazine that, that was owned by Jan Wenner as well called Men's Journal. And then, and then that led to a job as Maureen Dowd's assistant at the Times. And, and then I was sort of off to the races. So this is a bugaboo of mine, I have to ask. I think one of the structural problems that we have in national media now is that not enough people start doing things like starting fires on subways and doing the, that sort of, it, some of it's grisly, but the shoe leather kind of reporting and being out there and doing that just briefly how does how did that affect your toolbox how did that how did that make you better or maybe make you worse how did that affect you it's a good question i think from early on it helped develop my nerve and it takes a lot of nerve to to do journalism because you're sort of out there on a limb and you've got to ask people rude questions and it's sort of an insane job when you think about it i mean you have this sort of all access pass to go up to people and ask incredibly rude questions. And I learned to do that early because I had to do all these really weird assignments and stand in subway stations and ask people questions. And it's really nerve wracking, especially when you're young. And so I think that helped. But I agree with you. I think the way that the media business is structured now, most young people, the job is to sort of sit in your apartment and have opinions online all day. And I don't think that's because that's what young people prefer to do. I think actually being able to report is a luxury. It, it, it's expensive to pay for reporting and to send people out into the world and to give them a week to work on a story and to make all the right phone calls and to knock on doors. And it's a shame that so many of the jobs now are just like, hey, can we have three posts up by the end of the day? Or look how this person reacted at the Oscars when they didn't get an award. Can you write something about that? I mean, that is not journalism. And right. If, you, if your story includes the phrase, social media went crazy for blank, then you may not actually be a reporter. Right. Or my personal pet peeve, the phrase took to. So-and-so <laughs> took to Twitter to say X. I yes. mean, yes. you see that in every story. Where did that come from? Nobody uses that in real life. Like, I like it that it sounds old timey. Like, oh, so he goes, oh, he's, he's taken to Twitter, has he? Oh, he's like, he's on a soapbox out on the corner. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It drives me crazy. Sean, you wrote, I'm going to take it back one step before moving forward, because I want to ask you how to, how one exactly lands a job as Maureen Dowd's assistant and, and what impact that had on you. But you wrote an op-ed for The Times about the, the town you grew up in and the impact of the opioid crisis on that town. And we're going to link it in the show notes. I, and, we'll, and we have a newsletter that comes out with the show where we link articles. So it'll appear there as well. I encourage everyone to read it. But how did that how has that shaped you and the way you approach your journalism? It struck me reading it that not a lot of people, I'm one of them who I cannot write in the first person. And you were able to write in this really compelling way. Both you can write well in the first person and in the third person. But how did that impact you? And, and what was it like writing in the first person about that? Well, thank you. It was very strange writing in the first person. I don't like to do it either. I much prefer interviewing other people. But that op-ed basically was born out of a much longer piece that was about 6,000 words. I wrote it for the first volume of Leon Weaseltier's new journal called Liberties. And it was a much longer, more kind of, let's say, gonzo take on my wild teenage years of doing drugs and losing friends. 
And in that piece, a lot of that piece came from talking to a very old friend of mine who had sort of been sober for a long time. And, and by the time the piece came out, he died. And that's what kind of sparked the, the op-ed almost as a follow-up to the essay. I don't know. It was strange. I got the sense that I, it, Leon, I didn't want to write that piece, but Leon knew all my stories and he kept talking me into it and said that it should be a piece. And then finally I started thinking about it and I was approaching, I'm 30 now. So I wrote all of that when I was, I guess, 28. And I guess I just thought that the shelf life on all these crazy stories was kind of coming to a close and I was going to forget them. And if I hadn't written it, it would just go away forever. You know, I'm on the path to becoming a cosmopolitan media elite and I needed to sort of reach back and hold on to my white trash roots a little bit. So yeah, I don't know. It was kind of cathartic. People in my hometown were really happy that I wrote it. Strangely enough, I think they are in this perpetual cycle of silent horror and, you know, not to sound like a political cliche, but they feel forgotten about or whatever. So for them, it was they were actually happy to see it written about. I don't know. Yeah, it was sort of strange, but um, I, I want to read. I want to read a passage from this. By the time I graduated from high school ten years ago, opiate, opiate, opioids, opiates were everywhere. Percocet and Vicodin became a regular presence at parties, mixed with booze and some weed. Hills were a new way to kick a Saturday night up a notch. Teenagers eager to get their paws on something stronger had no trouble finding OxyContin. Those pills were designed to meet out pain relief over 12 hours, but they could be crushed and snorted for immediate zombification. Addiction came quickly after. In 2010, when I was in 11th grade, Purdue Pharma tweaked OxyContin to make it uncrushable. But rather than deter my friends, this pushed classmates already keen for the high straight to heroin. Why bother with a pesky pill that takes its time when a stamp bag of the real stuff could be had for cheap, the overdose is ramped up. First of all, great word use, great, the, the high-low mixture where you're using scientific terminology, but you're also using words like zombification is, is really powerful. One thing that, you know, I, my hometown, you could say a lot of the same things about my hometown in West Virginia. And there is a special kind of accountability that comes with when you're writing about your own people, right? When, when you want to write about your own people, it has to be right and it, or it can feel ex exploitive to you, right? That you, as you're doing it, it feels gross if you're, if you're using the misery of people that you know. But on the other hand, if you get it and if you get it wrong, they're going to hate you. Talk a little bit about accountability to your subjects and that when you're writing something about being accountable to the people you're writing for. Wow, you're so right. And nobody has ever put it to me like that before, but that's exactly what I felt and why I was resistant on doing it. First of all, I'm not an addict. I So I felt a little exploitative. And also it had been 10 years since a lot of that stuff happened, so I wasn't even sure if I was remembering it correctly. So it was a weird thing where even though the whole story was already in my head, I almost had to re-interview people who were there to make sure I wasn't misremembering it, but also to give myself a license to do it. So part of the reason why my friend who I talked about who passed away after the piece came out, why I spent a lot of time almost re-interviewing him was to give myself permission to do it. And actually, everybody really, really wanted me to write this stuff. And once I began talking to them again, there, 
it was it wasn't like I was gilding the lily in my own head. In fact, the opposite was true. It was much crazier than I remembered. With with some distance, I could see that. And you know, after it came out, I got a lot of offers to do book deals, and I I didn't. I ended up just kind of being like, no. I mean, I feel like I told everything I had to tell on the subject, and that it just wasn't really my place to do a whole book on it, and that I didn't want to spend another minute kind of looking backwards, but rather moving ahead. But it was, yeah, it was a strange, it was a strange thing. Well, a strange thing, very well done. Thank you. Let's fast forward to the New York Times. How did you land the Maureen Dowd assistant job? Yes, it was, it was a really crazy thing. I, I had interned at Rolling Stone. I was working at Men's Journal and, you know, I would check the Times website all the time and I... It was great working at a men's magazine, but, you know, a monthly print men's magazine, it was circling the drain, basically. It was only a few months away from being purchased by David Pecker and essentially killed. And I was, you know, I learned a lot from those editors. There were some really cool, brilliant, longtime magazine editors there, but I, the election was unfolding and I was dying to write about politics and not, you know, edit print pages about IPAs and hiking gear. So I was always looking, how could I break in? How could I break in? And I would freelance for Rolling Stone on the side. But then when I saw the Maureen job open up, I just wrote, I just kind of took a chance and wrote this one paragraph, very voicey letter. And the first sentence was, I didn't go to an Ivy League school and I don't know anyone at the New York Times. And I guessed what her email might be. And I I sent it to her and she wrote back immediately and just wrote, sounds great. Where do you live? And that started a process of many interviews and my first interview with her was actually on St. Patrick's Day and we're both Irish so that was sort of fortuitous even though I had a 103 degree fever I didn't tell her that but I showed up to the interview anyway (laughs) and 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 it and it all worked out and then she you know she called me one day and just said so you're ready to move to Washington and and I did and I did the job for almost five years and it, it changed my life in every way. Can you say more about that? How did that job change your life? And what was the experience? What did you learn from working for her and watching her work up close? Oh, gosh, so many things. I mean, I went from being, you know, working to for a men's magazine, and and I was also bartending downtown to all of a sudden, working a block from the White House in the middle of the Trump years with arguably the most famous columnist in America, who had this amazing Rolodex, she had covered like 12 presidential campaigns. She's just a font of encyclopedic political knowledge. And she is, she's an intense boss. She, in addition to doing those political columns, she was also doing these big, long styles pieces on everybody from Tom Ford to Bob Iger and Jane Fonda. And, you know, sometimes she'd get bored and want to go interview a new prime minister in a European country. And she kind of just could do whatever she wanted. And eventually, once she trusted me and we got tight, I was involved in, in every aspect of basically the journalism production from coming up, helping come up with ideas to doing research to fact checking the columns. I would sit with her as she wrote. And, you know, she was so generous. She would pay out of pocket to bring me on these trips and bring me in the room and give me a chance to interview prime ministers and former presidents and movie stars and to do that as a young journalist was just, I mean, it was like the ultimate apprenticeship, basically. Were were there things that surprised you from watching her do her job that you wouldn't have expected? Hmm. Good question. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. 
Well, what are what are some rules that you came up with for yourself out of watching her work? What are what are some insights that you that you remembered as you went? Like, never do this, always do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, a always read the newspapers every day <laughs> because you invariably like if you're getting ready to interview somebody in a week or whatever and you think you can put the papers down and just start focusing there will always be some story that appears all the way in the back of the business section about how the person had totally screwed something up and you would miss it and if you didn't have that then you couldn't ask them about it and you you, you really oftentimes only get one shot so you've got to just really really be like omnipresent all over the news she also taught me to make every make the last phone call that you really don't want to make sometimes in the process of reporting and as you're getting ready for the interview you make all the phone calls you think that you've got the person nailed and you kind of know what the gossip is around them but usually either before you do the interview or after when you're writing there's usually one or two tough phone calls that you have to do where you're going to have to call somebody and let them know there's going to be something in the piece they don't like or you're going to have to ask a persnickety question and sometimes you convince yourself that you don't have to do it and you're only convincing yourself of that because you know it's going to be sort of a painful or awkward phone call so you talk yourself out of it and that's always the call that you know you'll end up shooting yourself in the foot by not making. So she taught me that. Eat the frog first. You got to do, you got to do the thing. You got to do that unpleasant thing. And yeah. I guess you that... just got to suck it up and do it. And and you never know what might come out of the call too. And, and another thing I learned from her is you'll never know how the person's going to react to the piece. We've written total puff pieces of people and they would see one word in it and never talk to her again. One word they didn't like. We've written pieces that were like pretty, pretty like, you know, a little tough and kind of snarky. And the person will write back, thanks so much. Love the piece. You just don't know how they're going to react. And ultimately, it's not really your business how they react because you're not writing to please them or displease them. Your only audience is the reader, not the subject. So basically, the point is, don't worry about how they're going to react because you can't predict it anyway. You just have to do the story that you think is is right or fair or accurate or true or whatever. If any if any young person is listening to this right now, remember what Sean just said and repeat that over and over to yourself. Your only your only commitment here, your obligation is to your audience, to your reader, to your listener. You have to be accountable to the people you're talking to, but Sean has just identified probably the big problem in media today, which is forgetting who you're doing it for and that was very well said. Thank you. Sean, you moved to a reporter job at the New York Times and you spoke to another journalist, Steve Krakauer, about what the experience, about your experience being there when Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed in the midst of the George Floyd protests and the revolt internally at the Times over the publication of his op-ed. And I'm just going to read from the way you were quote, quoted, you can say if it was if it was accurate or not. But you were quoted as saying it was just so bizarre what was happening. It was like a Maoist struggle session. You said that leadership at the Times completely lost their nerve in the face of, quote, angry backbiting staffers. And that you were, quote, so effing freaked out by the mob <laughs> and that the scene was like a murder. Were you quoted accurately, and can you talk a little bit about what it was like to see the internal meltdown over the publication of that op-ed that got James Bennett 
the then op-ed editor booted from the paper? Yes, I was quoted accurately. I mean, look, well, first of all, I was still Maureen's assistant. I was never actually a reporter at the Times. But what I'll say about that is this. I was there when it happened. James Bennett was my boss. I felt very strongly about what happened to him. I, I didn't like it at all. It was a very strange incident. And so I left the paper later on and I, I started this job at New York Magazine and, and Steve Krakauer contacted me and he was writing a book and he had all these different topics he wanted to talk about. And I said, you know, nine out of 10 of them I can't speak to, but that one I actually feel really strongly about. And if I'm going to be this person who's supposed to be writing about the media and keeping it real, I sure, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. So he called me and I kind of just let it rip. And then I forgot all about it. And months later, the book came out and I was like, did I really say all of that? <laughs> I, I, I was mixing metaphors. I was talking about Mao and Caesar and murder and all this crazy stuff. But, you know, I did. I felt really strongly about it. So I said it and I don't regret it. But that's really, you know, I don't have anything else to add about that. And, and the truth is, I love the New York Times. I loved working there. I am one of these people who reveres the paper. I don't, you know, I don't ever want to be that guy who's like a Times hater. I don't want to, God forbid, turn into Michael Goodwin or something. Ah. I, I just, <laughs> uh, I loved the paper. That was just a really unfortunate, awful incident. And, you know, I could have spoken with more nuance about it. I wasn't trying to say that there weren't things for people to be upset about, rightfully so, with that whole incident. But the way that it went down was just not cool. And, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I, I really, really respect the paper. And there's so many cool people who work there and amazing writers. I, I read it really closely. And there are, you know, I could think of 10 different bylines where if I see that person's name, I'll read, you know, I'm always going to read the story. I, I think it's such a great newspaper. You, uh, you're quoted talking about one prominent tech writer, a, 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 a white human who, quote, that he started to cry, quote, because none of his friends wanted to talk to him anymore because he had worked at this horrible, evil newspaper that would print Tom Cotton's op-ed. What seemed to me from the outside, and this is reading what you had to say, reading what Barry Weiss had to say, reading what all of these folks have had to say subsequently, strikes me that there was, a, and reflective of what was happening in the country, that there was a sincerely rooted panic among a lot of white Americans about maybe we haven't been thinking about this at all, maybe we've gotten all of this exactly wrong, and maybe this is, and I hate this term, that it's a moment or it's an inflection point or that everything's going to be different now. Was... Maybe we should take to Twitter. Yes, to... perhaps we shall take to Twitter to and announce it. our black squares and expunge our sins. Is, is, is what was happening at the Times an intense, a more an intense version of what was happening among elites nationally? Is that, is that right? Sure, I guess. And look, yeah, absolutely. It, it... It should have been a moment for certain people to sit back and listen and learn and reflect and hear from colleagues who've had different experiences. I was just making the point that there were certain highly overeducated white people who hijacked the moment and turned it into a crying session when it really had nothing to do with them. And that's what pissed me off. And, and how about this component to go back to you standing outside of a CVS waiting for smokers? The... Your appreciation, maybe even reverence for the work that The Times does, having gotten to travel around the world with one of its most famous writers and do all of that stuff, was there perhaps a lack of appreciation among 
your peers or younger staffers about what the times was, what the times means, and and how to understand it? Was there a do, do you think maybe you had a different sense of appreciation for the times? Oh, I have no idea. No, I don't know what other people appreciate or not. I'm not sure about that. I think, I think, no, I mean, look, people there are, are really happy to work there. Look, it's like the crown jewel of American journalism. Everybody wants to work there. People appreciate it. I think a lot of the struggles there in recent years, ultimately, a lot of it was about trying to make it a better, a better place to work and a better paper. And there were arguments over how to do it. And I don't know. I don't know. God, don't let me get in trouble. I should. No, no, no. And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to get you in trouble. I'm just trying to talk about. It's not just the Times, it's at the Post and it's at a lot of places. A lot of people who are under 30 who are working at prestige outlets and doing this stuff might not have a, a rooted appreciation about the hard and complex nature of this work is, is, is all that I mean. And that maybe you had, because you had not gone to an Ivy League school and because you had started out igniting railroad subway fires, that maybe that maybe you had a little advantage coming into the situation because you might have been more clear eyed is all. Well, I do think there is a kind of secret advantage to being not of, you know, a child of the one percent or whatever. There, it's a real problem in journalism now that most of the people I, I've most I think it's the right word. Maybe it's not. But a lo certainly a lot of the people are the children of the rich. It's become like this weird profession. It's like going to film school or being a poet or something. You kind of have to have you have to be independently wealthy to afford to be able to do it. It's super depressing, but we're a long way from any type of Jimmy Breslin style coverage in the newspapers. That's for sure. And I think there, I think that's a very true something I talk about. And this is not a book plug, but that I did research on this for my most recent book to talk about this stuff and how narrow the bandwidth journalists do come from these days, right? Geographically, econ socioeconomically, educationally, it's a, in a fairly narrow corridor. And even if there, there, there's lots of kinds of diversity that are important and newsrooms need lots of kinds of diverse points of view, but there are geographical and socioeconomic points of view that are underrepresented in our newsrooms today. Absolutely. Sean, well, I mean, I could press you to talk about this in a thousand different ways, but you know, it is it's humbling that you're that you're 30 and very talented Thank writer you. profile. So I want to move on to the profiles that you've written for New York magazine and talk to you a little bit about writing profiles, which I think is a difficult thing to do. So there was recently a lot of buzz about a profile that you wrote about the PR, the crisis PR guru, Risa Heller, whose clients have included Harvey Weinstein and Jeff Zucker and the, I'm blanking on his name, the congressman, the pick congressman. Oh, Anthony, Anthony Weiner. Weiner. Anthony yes. Weiner. Okay, everyone, everyone. And you write at the top of that profile, even if this is the first time you're hearing of her, you've likely already been spun by Heller. Is there anybody who has stepped in who does not call her to clean their shoes, says Evan Smith, co-founder of the Texas Tri Tribune, who has sought her advice, albeit not for any particular stepping he'd done. Heller's services don't come cheap, but why risk not calling her? I'm curious, how much, you, you write a profile, they're pretty long. How much time do you spend with these people? And 
what is your, you know, what are you trying to observe when you, when you go into it? I noticed that for the Heller profile, you know, you were in her house with her husband and her children. Yes. Well, the profiles are by far the, the most rewarding, my favorite things to work on. And I'm so lucky to be at a place that gives me space and time to do it. And I think no place is better at the profile than New York Magazine. So it's a really, really great place to do it. And I've got this fantastic editor named Carl Swanson, and he's like kind of my, you know, unsigned collaborator on a lot of this. He's very mischievous. He's a great editor. And they're they're tricky. The profiles, no matter what, the more time the person gives you, the better the piece is going to be. So somebody like Risa was great. I, I really like writing about behind the scenes players, and she was much more available to me and freer with her time. And she did invite me over and I think partly that's because she spins people for a job. So I think she couldn't help herself but to try to spin me a little bit. But she also, I think... And I is, love that you you reveal in the piece that you think she's trying to spin you by doing that. So you like, you know, you sort of show her hand after saying that she advised someone to show up to another press interview with a baby carriage. Um, she said she like did the same tactic on me by inviting me over and what you know having me interact with her with her husband and children. But sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you. no, sure. It's there was a meta element to that piece. The yeah. piece was essentially all about how the sausage gets made, and I'm showing you the chief sausage maker in town. And I think she knows that a good profile has scenes, and she was just trying to give me stuff that was going to make it good. So she was, you know, she couldn't help, she couldn't help but do that, but it was great. And it, she's right. It made the piece better. You know, I did a piece that was even longer on Joe Kahn, that the Times executive editor, and that was based on a one hour interview. So sometimes you only get an hour, sometimes you get much longer. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, and it's like with the Joe Kahn piece, I had three days to write that. With Risa, I had three weeks. So it, it, it all depends, really. One of the things that we talk a lot about is an, a watchword that an old editor of mine gave me, which is pack it with detail, right? And you do such a good job of packing stories with details. How much did the apartment cost? What time of day? What did it look like? What did you, you use those details to create texture around it, which increases not only the believability, right? It increases credibility, but also you paint a picture for the reader. Talk about the importance of detail and and where do you, where's the line between Tom Wolf and what's his name who wrote Less Than Zero? Yeah, Brett, Brett Easton Ellis. Where's where's the line between between Bonfire of the Vanities and American Psycho? <laughs> Bruce, wait, can I can I just give my favorite detail or my favorite scene from this piece? Sure. And we're going to link it, of course. But my absolute favorite scene from this is when you interview Ben Smith, the founder of Semaphore. And and I'm just going to read from it. Smith says he sandbagged Chuck Schumer, who Risa Heller was working for, with the then controversial issue of gay marriage, which he had been avoiding taking a position on as they were leaving a young Heller stopped and reamed me out this is ben talking for ambushing schumer and when she finished yelling at me she looked around and said where the f is the car i said oh i think he left she pulls out her phone and in the same tone she had just taken with me she began yelling where did you go just leaving me here on the sidewalk who do you think you are and this is ben talking he says i said to her i can't believe you would talk to the driver that way and she said 
What are you talking about? That was Chuck. That's so funny. I have such a great anecdote. She's great. And then the, you know, the follow-up paragraph is Chuck saying, yeah, I remember that. And I think this is one thing you can do in a profile. You can create kind of narrative cohesion by plucking things out and reading them to other people who are going to be in the piece. And you kind of have them talking to each other through you. And that's kind of one way to make things flow. Maybe that seems obvious, but um, as far as details go, I just always, this sounds so corny, but I feel like I view journalism and my career as this great, fantastic adventure. And I'm this person who didn't come from this world. And I am constantly shocked that I am even in these rooms with these people and asking them these questions. And it's like doing a big profile like this, you get to crash land on another planet for a while. And sometimes the planet is really glamorous. Like I spent six weeks writing about the Metropolitan Opera and the man who runs it. And, you know, I had basically never even been to the opera before. And suddenly I had an all access pass to explore the Met and I'm at home with him and talking to his wife. And so I view it that way. And I think that my job is to bring the reader along with me. And so you sort of want to hold their hand and bring them in and make them feel like they're in the room too. And so you think about what details stick in your mind that can kind of create the scene for the person. And I think also as you go along, you have to train your eye to pick out the right details. I think these profiles, it's like an iceberg. I mean, by the time, you know, it's that iceberg theory of what you're reading is just the top 10%. The bottom 90% is all the shit that I left out, which quotes aren't really that good, which quotes are good, but they don't really reinforce any of the themes you're trying to hit in the piece. And whole scenes get cut out. I had a whole section in that piece where I ran into her in Los Angeles that didn't make it in. So you got it. You kind of just have to leave behind the best, but, but you also have to train your eye to know what the best is. How and, long is uh, too, how long is too long? Well, I would have liked for it to be longer, but I think the editors are, they're, they're really, really good editors at New York magazine. They know what they're doing. So by the time they, they cut it down, it's usually, you know, that's basically the length it should be, especially because people have no attention span these days. But I, I think this piece was like 5,500 words or something. I, I think, you know, it all depends on the piece. Some pieces read really quickly. I think anything over eight is usually way too long. I often read things in The New Yorker and I'm just like, wow, this should have been cut in half. But I, I, I was going to say, you are incredibly lucky to have editors because much of the, the problem with long form journalism today is that it's too long form journalism and there's not good editing that's done in the voice of the writer that's done for clarity and concision. And yes, very often. So that's, and that's a, another question for a, a rising star, which is when you're young and you're starting out, you, if you're lucky, you have a great editor. And I was very blessed to have some great editors and they can be a little rough with you, right? Because you're starting out and you're trying to learn and you're ready to listen. You're now right there on the bubble, right? You're right there on the bubble that you can start to throw your weight around a little bit. You get the gits, you get the interviews, you get the stuff. Talk about be, talk about the necessity of humility. Talk about the necessity of editing and how you keep yourself honest on that stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, my main editor's name is Carl Swanson. He's brilliant. And I feel super, super lucky because a lot of people, a lot of the jobs in this industry anymore are sort of joyless, but we laugh all the time. I mean, from the inception of these ideas all the way to the time when it publishes, 
we will go out to lunch and we'll talk really long about the story and what we need to do and what sort of cues it needs to hit. All the clips that I read having to do with the subject, I send them to the editor too. I want his eyes on them too. I sort of like feel like I need to co-opt his brain and have him focusing on what I'm writing about too, because he has really great ideas. And it's a real partnership and I feel very lucky. And then the editor-in-chief, his name is David Haskell, and he's he has sterling judgment and he's really clever about finding the big ideas because sometimes I can get lost in the weeds a little bit and I my eyes light up at gossipy fun details, but he's often reminding me that we need we need some big picture, smarter, elevated points in there. So he's good at, at helping me kind of be more than a gossip columnist. And so I, yeah, I feel very, very lucky to have these editors and they're, they're great. And they also, because it's a magazine, they let me have my voice and the editing is usually light touch isn't exactly the right word, but they, they are not, you know, it's not like writing at the wall street journal where you don't know who wrote what, because there's such a rigorous house style. It's not like that. And and I, I would just say to another piece of advice for young reporters, young journalists is. If you find, a, be willing to pay a price, whether that's financially or in how difficult the work is or whatever else, if you find a good editor who respects your voice, because that's the great gift that an editor has is, is, to, is to respect the voice of the writer. If you find somebody who can do that, you're very lucky these days because there's not very many of them out there and be willing to pay the price to right. stay in the space to get it done. It's hard, but it's worth it. I will also say because you as the writer, you're the one doing all the reporting, so not the editor. So, you know, by the time I'm done the profile, I will have made many, many calls off, many of them off the record and on background, but they inform me kind of what's right and what's fair and who has a vendetta and who's kind of going after who in the piece. And you want people, you want to channel the vendettas of other people through you because it can help enrich the writing and it'll help inform you on what to ask. But ultimately, you know what's fair and you're deciding what's fair to put in. And sometimes an editor or somebody else will have an idea about something and want to write something in. But you also have to know when to push back because yep. you're the only one that's seen the whole picture or at least as much of it as a reporter can see. And so you've also got to, you know, you have to know when to push back at times too and say, well, that's not really a fair characterization. This or if we put that in, we have to put this in or... You know, and I'm a very big believer also in stabbing people in the front. I don't like any sneak <laughs> attacks. So if I'm with a subject at the end of the piece, basically by the time the piece runs, they're going to know almost everything that's in it. I'm not saying I read the piece to them or something like that. But if there's a thorny section or there's some kind of contention or tough idea that I'm going to insert in the piece, I'm going to tell them all about it and give them the chance to respond or not. I think that's it. Just, Eliana, I promise we can move on right after this. But he, Sean has raised a, another great point about ethics and another great point about how to do this business, which is we live in a time with what I would call promiscuous anonymity. We live yes. in a time where so-and-so would, the, the soup of the day will be French onion, according to a person familiar with the thinking of the <laughs> chef who, who asked for anonymity so that they would, because they're not, my favorite citation for anonymity, because they are not authorized to speak on the record. Oh, well, in that case, geez, that what Sean points out here is, and I think it's really worth remembering, there is a moral ethical responsibility when you go off the record, right? That as you take this stuff, you can't just be a raw conduit for the vendettas of other people. You can't let people use anonymity to try to harm other people 
because if it's something that they won't put their name on, well, sometimes it's appropriate, but very often they just want to use a, somebody like Sean, somebody like me, somebody who like Eliana to trash somebody else, but not be accountable for it. And Sean, I think makes a great point there about the, the duty and responsibility we have to talk to those people, to get the picture, but then run it down, check it out and do it in, in an honest way. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you use the word conduit. You have to let yourself be used as a conduit. I both want to be used for vendettas and I want to be used for spin. And then you take the spin and you take the vendetta and you find out which, where the truth is somewhere halfway between it. But you kind of, you have to be open to being spun. And oftentimes, if you allow them to spin you, you'll get something out of it. You'll get more information, maybe it's positive information to them, but either way, they're giving you something. And very often to... not what they intended, right? <laughs> right, right. You just have to, yeah, you just have to be wise about what ultimately makes it in at the end, but you have to be open to hearing everything. Amen. It's funny. The first media reporting job I ever had was at the New York Sun, and they had a rule that there were no, any negative quote had to be on the record. So you could, which was, which was difficult. But Sean, what did you come away thinking made Risa good at, makes Risa good at her job and makes somebody like Jeff Zucker, who said he'd never even met her before he hired her pay? I mean, I don't even want to know what he's paying her per month. But I what think, makes so good? I think probably for her, it's what makes anybody good at their job, which is that she loves it. She loves the press. She loves the game. She loves New York. She loves the characters. She's a voracious reader. For her, it's, yeah, I don't know. I, th I think a lot of times when you deal with flax or, you know, communications people or whatever, there's a sense that they actually hate reporters or disdain them or look down on mm -hmm. us. And, you know, <laughs> maybe they have a reason to, but she actually loves it. So it's a really strange thing. She's kind of like a warrior, oftentimes a happy warrior. I think you get a different version of her depending on what your story is or what type of reporter you are, but she likes to play the game. And and that's not true of a lot of people who deal with reporters that want to just keep us at arm's length or stonewall us. Or I, I'm often shocked at how negligent people are at their jobs in that role because it's not that hard, really. I know. Let's just move take, on. Just take me out for a drink and be nice to me, you know? I know. I know. We're, we're, we're a cheap date. Yeah, seriously. We're a very cheap date. Let's talk about your profile of Matthias Doppner. Oh. And, then, and then we will mercifully let you go. Sure. Uh, but I love, and I want to ask you some of the same questions about what makes him interesting and what makes him good if you think he is good. But you write that Nothing about Doppner is small. He's got a big ego, big appetites, big plans, big hands, and a big mouth. He speaks with supreme self-confidence, but there's something boyish about him, energetic and a touch mischievous. He's a controversial person. Not everyone likes him, but there's nobody would say who would say he's not an agenda setter, says John Harris, a co-founder of Politico. And this is Matthias Doffner, who's the CEO of Axel Springer, which just paid a billion dollars for Politico. And you move on to note that Doppner was basically a twerp in in grade school and that he was always picked last in gym class. You quote him saying, I was always the last guy sitting on the bench. And the teacher would say, you have to take Matias. And the captain would say, no, we'll play with one less. Freakishly tall from the time he was 14, he was treated like a teenage Grendel. There was no basketball in German schools back then, he said with a sigh. 
And so I, I loved because, you know, I was always picked last. I'm like five feet tall and, you know, played basketball. The idea or the portrait you painted of like, you know, this nerdy loser who's now a billionaire with a museum of nude portraits. Tell us about how you went about this profile and what you think made him an interesting subject. Yeah, I mean, he's a journalist's dream because he's so colorful. He speaks with these crazy quotes. He's got all these nutty details about his life. It was the hardest piece I think I've ever done because Sarah Ellison at The Washington Post was also like racing out a profile of him at the same time that torpedoed mine a little bit. And he's just complicated. I mean, it's European media. It's it's German media. The business aspect of it was complicated, but he is such a great character. And for me, you know, this piece began with us going on a hike in Sun Valley and he's six foot seven or something like that. So it was this like hilarious kind of hike where I could barely keep up with him. And I, I think there are certain themes about him that make him like a character that I wanted to reinforce throughout the piece, which is that this is a guy who is so big, big hands, tall, big enthusiasm. He is quite literally overgrown. He's overgrown Germany. He's bored with where he's from. He's conquered the media market there. America, he's obsessed with America. He's always wanted to live here. He wants to be a player here. Even though he's the most powerful media mogul on the European continent here, he is a small fish in a big, big pond. And so even though he's six foot seven at Sun Valley, he was, you know, he's kind of trepidatious and he wants to break in and he thinks Politico is his way to do it, but he's not going to stop there. And he's just kind of voracious and He's a larger than life character, and those are hard to find. And if I have any bias as a journalist, it's for larger than life characters. I think he was very charming and and I was charmed by him. And again, I had to kind of cut against that by calling people in Germany who didn't like him. And I, I talked to a lot of other journalists there, other editors, other media executives. One person called him the devil incarnate. And I was like, what? Wait, why? You know, so... <laughs> Yeah. It's it's hard. You have to you have to fight against your own your own biases and kind of snap yourself out of it. But still, at the end, I didn't care. I was charmed by him. And I think ultimately the piece was sort of nice and a bit more about understanding this person and what motivates him. And, you know, you can still ferret out the, the tough parts and ask him about that directly. But he's a great character. And I think the the contrast between your piece and Allison's piece, which were both good, but that two people could write about the same person at roughly the same time and produce different out such different outcomes and yours definitely had the inside out telling of Daphner's life and all of that stuff whereas Ellison's piece was that you you felt like maybe Daphner was one of the nudes in his nude museum right that you <laughs> you were observing the subject as opposed to being with the subject and you might have had access that she didn't or whatever, but it, it was revealing to me how two good journalists working at the same time can produce such different takes and, and both of them giving a fuller picture of the subject. Yeah, she's a great reporter, not not someone you want to go up against. And and I knew that she had hers in the hopper ready to go because we both start, ended up starting, starting to call the same sources. So they were getting calls from both of us. And then, yeah. Hers came out on my birthday <laughs> and my editors were like, we're going to hold your piece. And I was like devastated, but it all ended up working out and it was for the better, honestly. It's, it's, she, it's a she's a great piece. reporter. Yeah. Okay. So well, who? It, go ahead. Quick, quick, 
quick question, and then we can wrap. You know, the Ellison piece in the Washington Post focused on emails or text messages that Doppner had sent to his deputies saying Trump got most things right and let's pray for his victory on the eve of the 2020 election. And I've heard, you know, I I used to work at Post, spent three or four years at Politico. So I've heard a lot of different versions about this. And I'm curious, like having spent time with him, do you think he meant that? And like, where did you land on this? I found that the Washington Post piece, like, I wouldn't really call it a profile of him. It was like, it was like, you know, it was a a scoop that, oh, my gosh, this guy wrote these text messages and it took it very took took that very straightforwardly. I Yes, I agree. This was another theme that I wanted to get in the piece about him that I kept trying to ring this bell in each section, which is that he's getting lost in translation. He's this kind of loudmouth contrarian person with this great sense of humor at a time when everything is very black and white. Everything is tribal. I have a quote up high from a German, a very prominent German media figure who's just like, he's underestimating U.S. politics. It's really hardball. He can't tell his little jokes and and get out without getting scraped. And, you know, I just think, God, are we so childish? We can't keep two thoughts in our head at once. Of course, this guy's going to agree with a lot of Trump's foreign policies. They line up with a certain worldview from that political party in Germany. I mean, objectively, what Trump did on a number of issues is are things that that party wanted to see happen. So he's just having a conversation with a close circle of executives saying, hey, you know, (laughs) as awful as Trump is, are you guys going to deny you didn't like when he did this? I mean, I don't think that that's such a should be such a pearl clutching thing. But yeah, people really flipped out about that. So and the and the pray for his victory, I read as trolling that he was. Yes, he, he's he, a giant troll. I mean, he, you know, this is the, also the thing with him is he is he actually believing a lot of the stuff and he's kind of hiding behind the contrarian card. Maybe it's a little bit of both, but you know, either way, I think some of it was lost in translation, and he had a number of really funny slip ups. Not just that, there were a few other things he did that kind of right off the bat. He's in this mode where he's trying to establish his reputation as a as a player in the American media. His whole career has led up to this point where he has the money to make a purchase as big as Politico. And right out of the gate, he has all these slip ups and it was sort of going disastrously on that front. And and it was kind of funny because he there's something about him that's just very like merrily kind of rolling along and he gets back up and he gives a quote like, oops, I didn't mean that. And then he's on to the next thing. And I, I again, there's sort of a happy warrior quality to him, which I like. He he could take a punch. That that famous German sense of humor, that the, the famous <laughs> German humor. OK, I got to know who is or some of your dream interviews. If you could do a profile right now and you and you had the magic wand Who's who's on your who's who's at the top of your list? I would say Rupert Murdoch, Quentin Tarantino and Madonna. And the funny thing is, you'll probably do at least one of those (laughs) eventually. What 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 is it about somebody that makes them fascinating to you? Why why are people like why are those kind of people fascinating to you? Well, those three are just I just think objectively fascinating. I'm a huge Tarantino fan. I always have been since I was little. And, you know, Rupert. He's just the king of the media. And obviously right now he's extra fascinating. 
And then Madonna, I mean, I live a block away from her on the Upper East Side and I always walk by her house and I'm like, what was going on with her right now? So I just think it would be interesting to find out. And in terms of a piece of advice that you would give young people who are getting started and want to do the kind of work that you would do, what's just just give, give them a, 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 something to hang on to as they as they go down and stand outside their their figurative CVSs. <laughs> I would say work really hard, be really gracious, find an editor or somebody senior in whichever organization you happen to be in who gives a shit and will try to mentor you and teach you. You're never going to learn it on your own. You've got to find the people who've been through it. And usually there's at least one person who will take pity on a, on a young person. Find that person, cultivate them. And I would say also read a lot. In the beginning, you're never going to have your own voice. You need to find a journalist who you really like and want to emulate. And then you need to find every single thing they've ever written. And you need to read it and let it soak into your copy and, you know, just keep reading. Who Imitation. Was that? Oh, yeah, go ahead. There were several for me. I really am a huge fan of Vanessa Gregoriadis, who wrote these really great, juicy, sharp pieces for New York Magazine all through the late 90s and early aughts, and then at Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair. And to me, that's just a great magazine writer. But also, you know, Ken Aletta and Alexander Stanley and Lynn Hirschberg and, you know, basically anything that was in Graydon's Vanity Fair. I have... And, and Tina Brown's. I have all those Vanity Fairs. I buy on eBay and study them. Imitation is the sincerest form of journalism. As, as an editor told me when I was getting started, gave me that same advice. So that's great advice. I really appreciate you sharing that with us today, Sean. Sure, it's really sure. good to get to know you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. It was fun. Thank you. We hope you'll come back another time. But thank you so much. And we will link everything we talked about in the show notes. And Sean, we might follow up and ask you to send us some of your favorite profiles that you mentioned, and we'll put those in too. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you again to Sean for joining us. And that is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, as always, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. 